This is Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number R8, with guest Danielle Gilmore. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no-BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to episode eight of the recovery podcast. I can't believe we're already eight episodes in. This has been such a joy to do and bring you these stories of recovery with these amazing women. So before we get into today's guest, which is a little bit of a different story than we've heard, I kind of wanted to give you a variety. I just have one announcement, and that is that there are only two days left to sign up for your kick-ass masterclass. It's a nine-week online class for women who want more self-awareness, more courage, more confidence. What more could you ask for? It's really for anyone who struggles with what we talk about all the time, negative self-talk. It's for anyone who struggles with behaviors like numbing, people-pleasing, perfectionism, and just feeling like you need help and to be surrounded by women just like you. In your Kick-Ass Masterclass, you get direct access to me in our private Facebook group. There are live calls. I'm going to be doing some live videos answering your questions You get lifetime access to the materials and you get access to my exclusive alumni group for free. You can find all the information and sign up. There is a payment plan as well. Kickassmasterclass.com. We start very soon. I'm so excited. I teach it once a year. This is my signature program, my most intensive program I teach in a group setting. So I just want to read you what one of the women said last year from your kick-ass masterclass. She said, I want to thank you, Andrea Owen, for this class. I learned about my triggers. Well, I faced them. I learned about my masks and well, I can keep going with all the terminology, but let me say this. Most importantly, I feel like a better person, a person I love, a person I wanted to be, but now I know I can and I am. Thank you again. And that was from Andrea Blakesley and just warms my heart to hear that. And I love these classes. They are for anyone who listens to this podcast, has read my book, who loves personal development in general and wants the next step, who wants more direct guidance and who wants to be more intentional in their personal development journey. So that's the only announcement I have for you. I hope to see you over there. Kickassmasterclass.com. Before we jump into the interview, let me tell you about today's guest. Danielle Gilmore is a public speaker, writer, and independent researcher. She received her BA from Kentucky State University and her master's from Indiana Institute of Technology. Her passion for promoting holistic health and wellness in her community has presented opportunities to contribute articles to the Huffington Post and various local publications in her hometown of Indianapolis, Indiana. Danielle has also been a featured speaker at conventions and conferences throughout the Midwest, addressing topics such as eating disorders, community health initiatives, and mental health. And just a quick side note, the audio is a little tricky. We had some technical difficulties, and I was not going to give up on this interview. So you can hear her. There's just a little bit, uh, might sound a little bit different. So please forgive the audio. And without further ado, here is Danielle. Hello, Danielle. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. 
I am excited to talk to you for several reasons. One of them being is that on this kind of recovery series that I've been doing, we've been talking to a lot of women specifically about alcohol. And I know that, Mm -hmm. and and you probably know this too, that whatever our uh, quote unquote addiction is, whatever it is, whether it's food or alcohol or booze or love, it's just the symptom of an underlying problem. And so I wanted to have somebody on here who could speak to more than just alcohol. And I'm so glad to have you. So which brings me to my very first question is, you consider yourself a compulsive eater, love and sex Mm -hmm. addict. And again, I'm excited Mm -hmm. to hear your story because I know that People can replace addictions when they get sober. So if anyone's listening to the whole series and they're either thinking about getting sober from alcohol or already have, you know, food can come in there and love and and all of that stuff. And I wanted to get, again, a variety of stories. So can you briefly tell us your story first about food and I don't know, did it overlap with love and sex? Like, feel free to just tell us what did that all look like for you? Absolutely. Yeah, that's a lot. So, I know. <laughs> so first, I'm, 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 Everybody get I'm comfortable. <laughs> right, right, right. All right. I'm 32 years old. So I feel like, and I just had a conversation with someone about this a couple of days ago. I feel like I was actually born an addict and mm-hmm. it just so happens that my particular type of addiction skewed towards food and sex and love because those are things that were readily accessible to me. But I tell you, it could have been anything Mm -hmm. as I have come to understand myself in these past few years that I've been in recovery, past several years, actually. But just a brief little background. So I was born and raised in the Midwest, single mom. My grandmother kind of stepped in where my father wasn't there. My mom worked a couple of jobs to support herself, my sister and I, so we were pretty poor. And part of my experience with my mom working so much is she was, like, shipping my sister and I off over to the house of, like, just a bunch of children where we would be babysat by someone who I'm coming to understand now was pretty much out of it a lot of the times because she was drinking, Mm. um, the woman that was supposed to be taking care of us. And so in that situation, I experienced sexual trauma. I was sexually abused by an older kid that was there who would force myself to do things with the other children that were there while he watched. He would also, you know, touch me in very inappropriate ways. And this started happening to me when I was about five or six years old. Oh my gosh. And so for me, that is where it really began. And I can remember these things very vividly, much more vividly lately because I've been doing actual work around sexual trauma and healing, et cetera, for the past few years of my life. But that started for me at that very young age and that switch was flipped for me where I became sexually compulsive. Um, I did not understand what was happening with my body. I didn't understand, you know, why this person was doing these things to me. And I checked out a lot of the time, but it definitely set up that craving for me as I understand it. And then the food kind of came into the picture around that time too, because I felt so confused and uncomfortable around what was happening to me that I had to grab onto something that was easy for me to get myself like I didn't need mm-hmm. anyone to get food for me so I started eating to excess around that time um, and like I said that started for me around six or seven and throughout you know my adolescence up until probably about maybe my early teens I had like all kinds of very weird sexual things take place with me like through my family through friends of my family etc these things that I, I thought were very normal but when I started seeing a therapist at around age 20 to 23-ish, 
we had some conversation around that and she like sat up in her chair one time and I'll never forget it was kind of dramatic and she looked at me and said you have been abused these things so are common so to everyone time, so the whole time of your teens you thought that what happened to you was just normal yeah I thought it was very normal wow. I thought everyone experienced things like that and so gradually, so like I said, that started very young. I really started getting into the food around the age of about nine or 10 years old because I lived with my grandmother up until I was about nine or 10 years old. Mm-hmm. And when I moved out with just my mom and my sister, my mom worked. My mom had my sister and I very young. So I'm realizing now she was still growing up alongside us. So she had a mm-hmm. social life and things like that. And I spent a lot of time alone. And in that alone time, I ate. I was very isolated, and I know now that as a child I was very depressed. So I was very isolated, very depressed, and I ate to state all of that. And we lived really close to what we call a variety store, you know, a little candy store, where Mm -hmm. every little bit of money that I got, I would go to that store and buy candy and, you know, chips and sodas and whatever I could get my hands on in excess. And that kind of lifestyle started for me around the age 10. And went on pretty much until I discovered the realms of Overeaters Anonymous at about age 25. So from about age 10 until about 25, I was completely in addiction with mm-hmm. food. Like I would eat until I was sick a lot of the time. And I started out really paying attention to my weight when I was about 16 years old. I weighed about 220 pounds. Mm-hmm. And so from about 16 until maybe 25. By the time I was 25, I weighed about 378 pounds. And that's where I stopped weighing myself. Three, about 380 is where I kind of decided I'm not going to weigh myself at all anymore. And so, you know, there was high school. The high school years saw me, like, working at, like, fast food restaurants, doing that kind of thing that some of us do when we're around that age. And it was really for me to eat. Like, I would eat off the lines of these places. I would take food, go and hide in, like, closets and freezers and eat food while I was supposed to be working. Outside of that, I would take food home from these places. And it really was just about stuffing myself because I always felt so empty. But what I also saw taking place in those early teen years, you know, 13, 14, 15, is I started being very promiscuous. And it was really like just this need. I felt empty all the time. And so I was either eating to excess or trying to engage in something sexual mm-hmm. with someone. And those two things have been just just what what I kind of I hung on to it's like for all some you kind of salvation. Yeah. yeah, it's all I knew. And I dabbled a little bit in alcohol. Mostly in my undergraduate college years, I would drink to excess. Um, and I would completely blackout sometimes with drinking but I don't think that I'm an alcoholic Mm -hmm. I don't drink at this time in my life and I haven't for the past almost five years four Mm -hmm. years because I don't I just don't see a need to put that in my body probably best not to huh Danielle (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah I think it's probably a good decision that I make one day at a time not to drink but really that's the story like you have someone who never learned how to deal with emotions someone who had abandonment issues because one of my parents wasn't in the picture someone who was ostracized because of my weight I was always the biggest person anywhere I mean not just the biggest woman I was the biggest person especially Mm -hmm. in like my high school classes I started to realize I was bigger than my teachers I was bigger than the guys And, you know, for me, being a really, really large woman made me a very invisible person because just the way the society standards and what's considered beautiful and not set up, 
Yeah. And there isn't a lot of space for women who are obese. And I'm really glad to see some of these body body consciousness movements starting mm-hmm. to come along where people are accepting themselves more and understanding that beauty isn't just one way. Like it is just one particular standard as to what beautiful can be. I'm really glad to see some of that yeah. that was not around when I was growing up. That's pretty much what you got, you know, the brief annotated version of things was me just checking out with food, checking out with relationships, checking out with sexual encounters, you know, checking out with alcohol, like checking out as best as possible because I was not equipped to feel feelings or handle life on life's terms. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you said so much just in that last mm-hmm. little bit and that that's what it's all about, whether it's food or sex or alcohol. It is about checking out, not being able to live life on life's terms, not being able to control and, and, and also that crippling loneliness. And there's so many, Absolutely. there's so many painful things about life. And mm-hmm. for you, you know, coming from the story that you had and the circumstances that you were in, it was extraordinary, sounds extraordinarily painful. And so I have a question. So did you get to a point? So you, you said you were in your twenties where you discovered Overeaters Anonymous. And so mm-hmm. did you find that first or was it, or did it first get to a point with your weight where you said, I've got to make a change physically, like which came first? Okay, so I'm gonna say this really quick, Andrea. The universe is for me, like, and I've decided that, and so I live into that one day at a time. So I said that as almost like to preface what I'm about to tell you, how I came to the rooms of recovery. So I started out after college, I graduated college in 2006, my undergraduate college, and I started working for the government. And that's pretty much what I thought I would do. I thought I would get this career in government. I got a pretty, like a pretty posh job out of college. And like I said, I live in the Midwest, so government work was a thing. And I got in and I thought that's what I would do. So I randomly decided that I was going to apply for a nonprofit job. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm going to do this. This nonprofit job in particular served individuals who had substance abuse issues and are were HIV positive. I'd never done that kind of work in my life. Didn't know why I was being called to do it anyway, but I applied Just randomly. Anyway. <laughs> randomly. Honestly, <laughs> to I randomly took a pay cut, et cetera, to do this work. And at that time in my personal life, I was 25 years old. As I mentioned, I was about 380 pounds. I had recently been diagnosed as pre-diabetic and mm-hmm. put on metformin. I also had high blood pressure, so I was taking water pill mm-hmm. for that. I was in the worst shape of my life like the absolute worst shape of my life. And I applied for that job. I got that job. The executive director of that organization had been a clean member of Narcotics Anonymous for about 18 years at that point. Mm -hmm. He's now about 25 years clean and sober. But at that point, I would go and I would have conversations with him about my feelings and my life and the way that I was seeing things working for me and how I was afraid of this and that. (laughs) And this guy actually looked at me and he said, you know, I'm going to tell you a thing. And I said, okay. And he said, you talk about food and sex and love in the way that I used to think about heroin when I was in active addiction. Mm -hmm. And I want you to get to an Overeaters Anonymous meeting today. And I looked at this guy and I thought, what, first of all, what is Overeaters Anonymous? What is a meeting? This guy actually printed out a meeting schedule for me. 
and told me where I was going to go to a meeting that evening. And I did that. That was my very first meeting. I will never forget. It was in about October of 2010, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I went to this meeting and I sat there and I listened to these people talk and I said, these people are crazy and they have issues with food and I don't want to ever come back. (laughs) I think everyone says that that goes to a meeting. Yeah. And and that's what happened. So, and I was like, were you thinking I'm not like any of you? Yeah. (laughs) That's what I thought of my first Denial, right? Mm -hmm. Denial is deep. So I'm like, I don't need to be here and I'm never going back. And honestly, I did not go back for almost, I want to say almost a year. Mm -hmm. Right. I went to that meeting. It put some things on my mind that I did not want to have on my mind at that time. And for whatever reason, I didn't go back for at least a year. But also for whatever reason, that following year, the Monday following the Thanksgiving holiday, I randomly, and I can't tell you why, I can't tell you what, I randomly got myself together and went to a meeting and I have been going ever since. And that was in November of 2010. So I've been actively working a program in Overeaters Anonymous since November 2010. Wow. Okay. I love that you use the word randomly because I many times believe there are no accidents, especially when it comes to things like this. And, you know, I have a different story, but pretty much most of our stories are the same with the underlying stuff that's involved. And we actually moved and we moved from a different state and I was, we decided to live, oh God, this was a bad decision. We were invited to live with my mom and my stepdad, my husband, myself, and our two toddlers because mm-hmm. we were, we had moved to Utah. Anyway, long story short, I moved in with my, it sounds so awful to say, moved in with my parents and I didn't like the fact that I couldn't drink at three o'clock mm-hmm. in the afternoon, you know, without people mm-hmm. going like, why? So I just, I think all these things happen and that's when I got sober. And I don't know if I would have gotten sober if we would have not moved. So all that to say, Absolutely. I think that there are no accidents and things happen Absolutely. at the right time for us and not to us. Mm-hmm. So I'm really curious about this because I know a lot about the 12 steps. I have worked them myself in terms, terms of alcohol, but I've always been curious about this question. And, you know, I, I myself have struggled with love addiction. I think it's kind of strange that they lump love and sex addiction together, which is, you know, a whole nother conversation because for me it wasn't sex was like a tool that I used to right. help my love addiction. So for me it mm-hmm. was the sex didn't come first, the love and the rush and the chase and the that high came first. So mm-hmm. and to be honest with you, I still kind of struggle like with what is recovery in love addiction and we can get into that. I would love for you to answer the question is what is recovery considered with food and love addiction because these are two things that we still need. Like for me, I don't need alcohol to live anymore. Mm-hmm. I can completely abstain. Can you talk to that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. And that is a great question. I feel like that is the that is the biggest question that people have when they first come into the rooms of recovery for compulsive eating and other food addictions. And for me, what it looks like, it has looked like over these past six years of being in recovery is discovering foods that I can eat comfortably, meaning there are certain foods that I can eat that I can still maintain my sanity and serenity around when I'm eating them. And then there are also foods that I have come to understand that whatever maybe the ingredients in it, the texture of it, the memories that I have associated with Mm -hmm. it, whatever the case may be, I just can't eat them comfortably. So for me, dessert items, you know, your cookies, cakes, pies, ice cream, I haven't had any of that in almost five years. Wow. So let me stop you for a second. So if you had that, would that be considered a relapse? For me, it would be because I don't moderate sugar very well. So I have eliminated 
like refined sugar from what I consider to be my meal plan, like my diet of choice. And when I say diet, I don't mean diet, like right. actions or things like that. You're I'm referring to my diet as the general way that I feed my body. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Those things triggering to me, but it's all across the board. You would see all kinds of variations of meal planning in the program. And the program itself doesn't call for any meal plan at all. But what my abstinence looks like is I try to eat anywhere between three to four times a day, which would be three meals and a snack. I try to keep my meals pretty well-rounded, meaning that I have, like, protein, starch, vegetable, that kind of thing in in the majority Mm -hmm. of my meals. I've been, the technical term, pescatarian, which Mm -hmm. is a vegetarian that eats fish. I've been living that way for a little over eight years now. So... Like, I have to come up with some ideas around what protein looks like for me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which I feel like we all have very meal plans, so it's just not really a thing. But, like, that's something that's unique for what I have to do around taking care of myself with my food. And so, they have, of course, naturally, it can't be a thing where we don't eat. That's yeah. not recovery for me and overeaters and honest. Recovery looks like eliminating what some call alcoholic foods. Like, mm-hmm. there are just there are some foods that cause me trauma. Like there are just some foods that I can't comfortably eat. And I see that. And I actually went through a withdrawal process from refined sugar. And I went through this withdrawal in February of 2011, I think it was. 2000, yeah, about February of 2011. And this was the absolute worst thing that I have ever encountered because Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much my body had become dependent upon sugar. Like, and so taking that away from my body, I liken it to what I've heard others say that they experience when withdrawing from heroin, Mm -hmm. you know, or cocaine. Like the body gets used to what we, my body got used to what I put into it. And so once I stopped putting that into it, I really had these violent mood swings. Like I had these night sweats. It was a really rough time for me going off of sugar. And I try to make sure that I keep those memories in the back of my mind when I'm, like, feeling tempted to go and do something that's outside of what I need to be doing for myself one day at a time with sugar because it was violent. It was a violent letting go of those things that have caused me issues. That's so interesting. I have a, I, this is like just purely curious because, and I was just having a Instagram comment conversation with someone that I follow who's also a recovering alcoholic and she was talking about drinking dreams and many of us have drinking dreams and I've had two recently. And do you mm-hmm. ever have food dreams? Absolutely. Do you? And I'm so, I'm <laughs> Where so you're glad candies you said and that. And- <laughs> yes. I had a dream that was so vivid a couple of years ago, like about, <laughs> about two years ago where I like ate a candy bar and I was so afraid to talk with my sponsor about this in my dream. Like I was so afraid to talk with my sponsor about this in the dream and I felt terrible and I felt ashamed and guilty and I jumped up out of my sleep like, did that really eat that? Did that really happen? So when I went and talked with my sponsor about that in real life, she said that is a telltale sign that one is in recovery because Mm -hmm. what's going on in our conscious life and mind, you know, it shows up in our unconscious. Yeah. That's fascinating. Well, what I find really interesting is that, you know, I'm five years sober and I've had, mm-hmm. Congratulations. I've had oh, thank you. I've had various dreams over the years and I, I haven't had one in a long time, but I, I had had previous ones where like I'd be at a bar 
And I'd go up to the bar and I would order my favorite beer and I'd pay for it. Mm -hmm. I, I remember this dream clear as day. And I paid for it and I grabbed it. And I remember everything. I remember that it, the bottle was cold and wet. I remember putting it mm -hmm. to my lips and I could smell the lime because Corona was my favorite. Mm -hmm. I could smell the mm -hmm. lime and smell the beer. And then I put it to my lips and I could feel the cold bottle on my lips. And then at that moment realized, remembered that I'm sober. And I was so mm -hmm. disappointed. Like, And I didn't drink in my dream. <laughs> But it's, it's so weird how the brain remembers so much of the experience of whatever our addiction was and how vivid I have very vivid dreams. I don't know if you do too and how that, how that did, mm -hmm. like, could you taste the candy bar in your dream? Like, were you enjoying it? <laughs> yeah, it, it was a whole deal. And, and what <laughs> I feel like amazing. you're speaking to, right. What I feel like you're speaking to is what we see in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the doctor's opinion when they talk about this actual physical physical reaction to mm -hmm. whatever this addiction is that we have that also sets off this mental obsession and craving yeah. like there is an actual physical something that goes on with me at least that sets off this mental obsession once I put whatever it is inside of my body I have very little control if, if not any at all you know around what I do next and it's like we go on autopilot or at mm -hmm. least I've gone on autopilot I've seen myself I had a conversation with a sponsor this morning who said she sits in front of the television with her hand in a bag of something. And of course, she knows that the bag is empty and she doesn't even realize that she went through that entire bag while she's eating. It's yeah. like some part of our body and mind tends to completely go on autopilot. And it's an entire experience that's visceral, like what you just mm -hmm. explained, like the wetness of the bottle, the chill of the bottle in your hand, like the smell it's of not. the lime, like all of that goes into... When I think about this, like we have, excuse me, my words are escaping me right now, but we've like warped our bodies into such a state of like dumping things inside of it, like continuously, continuously. And so why would the body not register all of that in mm -hmm. our in our memory of grabbing onto something and our memory of tasting something, smelling something, how it feels, the texture of it. Like, yeah. And even the experience, the experience of being at a bar and like socializing, because I don't do that anymore. It was very interesting how, because, and also my point is, and, and I didn't mean to cut you off. I want you to finish your thought. No, you're good. You're good. Oh, okay. Well, it's just that I don't think about those things on a day in and day out basis. I don't daydream about drinking a Corona. But my brain, and it's like when you don't think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, I guess we kind of assume that we hit, it's it's in the past. We forgot about it until we have a dream about it. And it's so mm -hmm. weird. I also had a dream. This one was more recently that I was drunk. And those are the worst because mm -hmm. it's so amazing to me that my brain remembers what it feels like to be intoxicated. And I, mm -hmm. in my dream, I couldn't stand up straight. And I was like, I had, I was kind of, you know, when you're really drunk and you're, you swear you're walking in a straight line, but you're tilting. And like my shoulder was sort of like grazing the wall. And I was kind of doing like, you know, left foot over right, left foot over right, like trying to keep myself upright in the dream. And it was in my house. And I just, I woke up like, and I have actually had dreams, maybe only like one or two in the course of the last five years where I wake up and I physically feel hungover. And it is the strangest mm -hmm. experience ever. Ugh. Yeah. Worst. Yeah, absolutely. Yuck. Okay. So it's also interesting to me. So what has been some of the emotion? I'm going to throw you in the deep end of the pool here, Danielle. What has been mm -hmm. some of the emotional healing that you've had to face and heal? I mean, you told us your story. So, I mean, I'm sure that there was a, and you know, you don't have to get too personal if you don't want to, but I know that for many, when we walk into the rooms and we start our recovery, I don't 
think that we're very well prepared for some of the stuff that bubbles up. So can you give us an example of some of the things that you've had to really face and, and heal and maybe even forgive? Absolutely. So just off the top of my brain from what we started discussing early on when I was sharing my story briefly, I've definitely had to do work around healing from sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I have participated in like support groups that were specifically for women who have experienced sexual trauma. I have seen therapists who that was their, their deal. They specifically work with individuals who would also experienced that kind of thing in their past. I have had to come to terms with the fact that I am a perfectionist and I did not think that someone who was almost 400 pounds could be a perfectionist, mm-hmm. but I definitely was and can still be at times, um, depending mostly on my spiritual condition. I've had to come to terms with the fact that I feel like I was born with this drill sergeant down in myself that never, and I think this also hinges on the perfectionism, like that never wants to let me be enough. Nothing that I'm doing is enough. Nothing that I'm achieving is enough. Nothing that I'm giving out to the world is enough. Like, and that's something that I deal with on a daily basis. I've also had to come to terms with the fact that I did not have the kind of relationships with my parents that I wished I would have. And I've had to grieve that. Uh Like I mentioned, my father wasn't in my life much as I was growing up. But since being in recovery, these last maybe four or five years of my life, I have reconnected with my father and I now have a relationship with him, um, which I never really thought was going to happen. And when you spoke of forgiveness, like I've had to look at some of these things that caused me pain and say, okay. I got to get on with it. Like, I can't stay stuck because I think we also have read in the big book that resentment is a healing thing for an addict. Right. And I've come to understand that, and I have been sick with resentment the majority of my life. And so I'm having to, I'm not saying like it's past tense, I'm having to work through these on a daily basis and understand that I take life on life terms. I have thought that I was God a lot of the time. I was the God of my own life. And, And what that means is, It was all about me. I was very self-centered. It was like, what can you do for me? What makes me feel good? What can you add to my situation? And I have really had to turn all those ideas on their head. And now it's like, what can I do for you? What can I add to your situation? And not in a self-sacrificing way, but in a way where I'm becoming more, I'm becoming more interested in what goes on with my peers and what's going on in the world and how I can be productive and purposeful and intentional in how I show up on the planet. Mm-hmm. Like 12-step recovery for me has been my first attempt at living a principled lifestyle. And principle meaning that, you know, humility is a big part of it. Being loving, tolerant, accepting of others is a big part of it. And all of this is imperfect, of course. Practice makes progress. So there's no perfection here. But just I'm taking a look at all of these things that make life richer. I was very isolated in my addiction. And so it was me and my food. It was me and my alcohol. It was me and whatever partner I had chosen to turn my will and my life over to at any Mm -hmm. given moment. Mm -hmm. Like it was only me and those things. And I didn't let the world touch me very much because I didn't know how to handle being touched. And so now... I work on letting the world touch me. You know, I experience disappointment. I experience joy. I experience sadness. I experience a full spectrum of emotion, and I don't have to try to, like, blot any of it out because I've come to realize in the years that I've been in recovery that in trying to blot out the not-so-good feelings, by default, I also blot out or at least put a restriction on the level of the good feelings that I can experience. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's just off the top of your head. (laughs) Yeah. 
That is amazing. And for anyone listening who's like, like, you know, just like, oh my God, there's no way I could ever face all of that. I mean, this is, Danielle's talking about a long time in recovery. This isn't like what right. she just did in December. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I want to reiterate that because I feel like we have individuals that come into the meetings and that first day they're like, yes, I have found home. I have found camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to completely change my entire life in the next 12 hours. <laughs> and I have to also say that I feel like that whole impulsive, compulsive, addictive way of thinking about negative things can also play a part in thinking about positive things. I think recovery can be addictive. At least for me, I have seen there have been times where it's like, I'm going to go to two meetings a day. I'm going to, and, and there's nothing wrong with anyone's approach to healing and recovering. So I'm not saying that. But I'm also realizing that the bigger more important part of all of this is balance. Mm-hmm. You know, like there needs to be meetings in my life. I need, I have a meeting schedule that I try to adhere to weekly, but I also need to make time for socializing and healthy fun with other people. There needs to be some boundaries around my food and what I put in my body so that I can remain sane and at a healthy body weight for myself. But there also needs to be space for me to enjoy my food within reason of what, you know, what works for me. So I'm just realizing that balance is essential and coming into the rooms initially we're undoing what we've already done yeah so for me i had a sponsor tell me early on your first five years of recovery are pretty much you getting outside of addictive tendencies and then after that you start doing the work on being a person who's sober and living life one day at a time without addictive behaviors tendencies, compulsions, impulsiveness, whatever. And that was that person's opinion. So I'm not saying that that's fact or or whatever the case may be. But for me, I am realizing that my first five years of recovery, I did about three, four steps, shared fifth steps with sponsors. So really, I was like coming from under this shroud of just darkness and murk and, Mm -hmm. and just being dead inside and I really didn't start like feeling alive and like I was actually starting to live more into who I wanted to be on the planet until like this sixth year that I just came into in November. Yes, it is about, I I like that you said that, that some people, I think personal development and recovery can be addictive. I think that as addicts, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but we tend to be a little intense and mm-hmm. <laughs> we tend to take things and run with it. I love the motto, like, if one is good, then five is better. And I lived my oh, life that way, can. you know, <laughs> God. And that's actually, I've had to come to the realization that that's not true. Like, if one is good, then mm-hmm. one is good. So I want to close out today and just ask you one more question. And I know mm-hmm. that you've, you've talked a lot about how important 12-step meetings are for you and Overeaters Anonymous. And and if someone's listening to this and they are thinking that they're struggling with a food addiction, where should they start in addition to meetings? Are there any are there any additional groups or books that you have found most helpful? Mm-hmm. I would definitely say check out the World Wide Web Organization for Overeaters Anonymous, which is www.oa.org. Mm-hmm. They have everything listed on this site around your new to meetings. There's an assessment on there, whether or not you even like feel like you qualify to be a part of the fellowship, et cetera, et cetera, which qualifying for the fellowship is only having an issue with food that you want to stop. So when I say qualify, I don't mean that there are any like hoops you got to jump through or anything like that. But, like, that's definitely a place where I would start as far as the uh, Sex and Love Addiction Fellowships, the same thing. 
thing. I think it's slaa.org, mm-hmm. and you can find meetings set up all around the country. As far as books go, I definitely would say check out the AA Big Book. I think it's foundational. It's huge in my life. I use it to supplement my OA 12 and 12 and my 12 and 12 and SLAA. Mm-hmm. So program literature, any pamphlets that one could come across, any if anyone knows someone who's currently in recovery, have a conversation with them. Yeah. And that's called 12-stepping. But I have been really grateful to just have people who know a little piece about my history come up to me and say, hey, can I have a conversation with you about OA? I just had someone do that yesterday, actually, in my social media inbox. Like, mm-hmm. hey, I heard you attended these meetings. Can I ask you this series of questions because I'm interested? And so that gives me the opportunity to carry the message which is what we do for each other. But it also allows me to be a resource for that person because I have some experience with this imperfectly one day at a time. So I definitely would say reach out. Imperfectly one day at a time. Yes, reaching out is key. And we will link up to Danielle's Huffington Post article. And if it's okay with you, your social media handles. And Oh, absolutely. Oh, good. Thank you so much. And just thank you for mm-hmm. being here and sharing your conversation, your story, I should say, and, and having this conversation. I'm so grateful for it and for you and for, for everyone that's been on just being transparent women to be able to help each other. Because I think that when people are in sort of the throes of questioning their addictions, whether they have one or not, there's still so much shame and stigma around that. And Mm -hmm. it can be a lonely and very scary place. So thank you to everyone listening. And thank you, Danielle, so much for being here. It's been just a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Together we get better. So let's keep going. Together we get better. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We have two more episodes after this one in the recovery series. And until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.